Good evening. Let's turn again in the Word of God, this time Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. I really enjoyed those hymns. And from where I was sitting, you sounded good. It's good to sing with enthusiasm. And you sounded like you meant what you sang. I trust you did. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord. Matthew chapter 11, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Matthew 11 and verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Now we saw this morning that the Holy Spirit has arranged the Gospel of Matthew in such a way that it brings out the kingly character of the Lord Jesus. And it does it in an orderly fashion by looking at the five major discourses or speeches or sermons, if you prefer, that the Lord Jesus delivered. Then there are a few chapters after each of the discourses that illustrate the principles that the Lord details in that discourse. So we have the authority of the king set forth in the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then chapters 8 and 9 follow with the Lord Jesus showing us those principles of the kingdom worked out in his ministry, particularly 
by him going about healing and doing good to those that were around. But chapter 10 deals with the delegation of his authority. How the Lord Jesus didn't come to be a one-man show. Wonder of wonders, God includes us in the work of his kingdom. Includes us in the administration of it. In fact, this current life for believers in the Lord Jesus, as has been well said and memorably said, is training for reigning. We are preparing now for responsibility that we will have when the Lord Jesus reigns in the kingdom. And 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. In many places in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus puts forth this idea of faithfulness in little and then being made faithful over much. So the Lord Jesus delegates to his apostles, those who are sent out on a special mission, those who are sent out to preach the news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand or that it is coming near, that the king, in fact, was on the scene and already the voice had been crying out. John the Baptist had been carrying out his ministry, as we'll see in the passage we've just read. And yet, the people still weren't well prepared. So, as these apostles went forth, they went forth doing the same sorts of works that we see the Lord Jesus doing in chapters 8 and 9. Saying, look, Messiah is coming on the scene. The kind of things that Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 and other passages in the major prophets predict of Messiah are being carried forth by the Lord Jesus. But the Lord made it clear, as they went forth in His authority, they shouldn't expect that everybody would just capitulate. There would be opposition. I mean, the military is very big on authority, so they tell me. I've never served in the military. But you know, if a general sends a colonel out to a base somewhere with instruction, well, if there's a major or maybe an, a lieutenant colonel or light colonel in the parlance, you know, if they're in charge of the base, they better receive the general's order and they better carry it out or else there are consequences. How much more when the one speaking is the king of kings and lord of lords, even the king of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was sending them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Well, because... We have a God who seeks and saves that which is lost. As the Lord Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 19.10 We have a God who has sought man ever since the fall. You notice in Genesis 3, it is God who comes saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? We don't go looking for God. I know I sometimes hear people talk about when they found the Lord and I know what they mean. We're looking at it from our own perspective. But you know what? The Lord actually found us. We sing sometimes, Lord, thy love has sought and found us wandering in this desert wide. Aren't you glad that God seeks the lost? Well, the apostles came forth doing that, but the Lord forewarned them. Not everyone's going to receive your message. Some households you enter into, you'll bid them peace, and they won't be worthy of that peace. But there are going to be consequences if they reject it. Likewise, they're going to haul you before counselors and synagogues and they're going to beat you and you're going to be persecuted. And he even looks ahead beyond his ministry on the earth at that time to what's going to happen in the future tribulation when the tribulation saints are once again 
going out to Israel to bear witness of the kingdom before the king comes, this time at his second coming to earth on the Mount of Olives. And they're going to be persecuted until the Lord Jesus comes back. Well, chapters 11 and 12 detail a group of stories that are going to show us that what the Lord Jesus is talking about is corresponding with reality, that it is exactly how things were on the ground, so to speak. Except it's interesting, as we consider chapter 11 tonight, and Lord willing on Wednesday, chapter 12, it's interesting that in chapter 11, where we would expect it to then tell us about the ministry of the apostles as they went forth, we're not told about that. Instead, it reverts to talk about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Because there's a particular point that God the Holy Spirit wants to cast a light upon that we should understand about the authority that's been delegated to the apostles, and I would say through the apostles' doctrine that's been delegated to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we go out and represent the Lord and preach to the world, we must understand the kingdom isn't going to come immediately. And there is going to be persecution. And the king even will be absent from the scene for a time. Now that was wholly unexpected by the Jews. You can see on the outline we have up here as we look... Um, could we get to the next section please? Thank you very much. As we look to narrative two there... Or sorry, now I'm looking at the wrong thing. Wait a minute. Let me get my bearings till I get to the right chapter. There we are. Roman numeral number five. Narrative three which starts at chapter 11, verse 2, and goes all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. Judgment on evil is future, and the absence of the king. Now those are David Gooding's words, and Brother Randy Amos and Henry Sardinia add the comment that this was a radical concept to the Jew. They were expecting, in fact, observant Jews, that is, members of the Hasidic and Orthodox communities, are still expecting... Messiah to come back in power and in glory. And they expect that when he comes back, he's going to put down the enemies of Israel and exalt Israel. Well, we can certainly think about messianic prophecies that speak that way, don't we? We can think about Habakkuk and also Isaiah saying in very similar language, one of them, I forget which, says, The knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. We can think about that time that the new covenant looks ahead to in Jeremiah 31 when it says that none will need to say know the Lord for all shall know me. There's going to be this tremendous time of the glory of Messiah. I referred to Isaiah 2 this morning when the Lord Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and all nations of the earth flow to it now not coming to Jerusalem to besiege it, as they will at the end of the tribulation, but now coming in the millennium to learn of the Lord, to do obeisance of the Lord, according to Zechariah 14, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and to worship the Lord. It wasn't me, honest. Anyway, interesting sound effects you get here. If I could only time that better with a point, you know? Siren going by, but oh well. Keeps you awake, doesn't it? Yes, a lot of things I say keep people up at night, but anyway. Not so much during the meeting proper, but that's another story. In any case, there are the, that group of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Messiah coming in glory. 
But then what do you do with the prophecies that talk about Messiah suffering? Prophecies like Isaiah 53, which I understand in the liturgy, the systematic reading of the scripture in synagogues, to this day they skip over Isaiah 53. Because Christians have used that passage too much in trying to tell Jews about Hamashiach, Yeshua, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they don't want to hear that, so they don't read that publicly. If you ask them pointedly about it, they might tell you the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is Israel. And while I said this morning that no people as a group has suffered like the Jewish people have, I want to tell you as bad as their sufferings have been, it was not as bad as what the Lord Jesus suffered on the cross for Jewish sins and for Gentile sins. It was our sins collectively, wasn't it, that put our Lord Jesus on the cross. Now this was such a conundrum to Jewish scholars, even in antiquity, that some of them came up with the idea there's going to be two messiahs. There's going to be Mashiach ben David. That's Messiah, son of David. You know, David was the glorious champion. And they talked about that time when Messiah, the son of David, would come and reign on the throne in Jerusalem. So they looked at those prophecies of glory. But others said there's going to be another Messiah, Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, son of Joseph. And no charge for the Hebrew, and I didn't even spit on anybody with the gutturals. Isn't that impressive? But Messiah, son of Joseph, because Joseph was that one who suffered so much at the hands of his brethren. And so they said there'd be one Messiah to suffer, another to reign in glory. We, of course, know they are one and the same. The son of David is our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who fulfills all the great types of the life of Joseph is our Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah who at his first coming came to suffer, but at his second coming will come to reign. They don't see that interval, of course. But the Lord Jesus is going to make it plain that that's exactly what is happening in the world. Now, we have that literary marker I spoke of this morning in verse 1 of chapter 11. It came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples. There's always a statement about the Lord Jesus finishing these statements. And then it says he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now the scene changes, verse 2, when John had heard in the prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Now, at this point, there are some dear, well-meaning Bible students that have looked at this incident and wanting to preserve the honor of John the Baptist. They say, you know what? What John was doing here was he was trying to divest himself of his disciples. He wanted the disciples that had followed him to now turn and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an aspect of truth in that, isn't there? Because in John 3, uh, John, the Gospel of John 3, that is, John the Baptist is recorded as telling us, he must increase, but I must decrease. So we know that John wanted those who had followed with him to follow Christ. In fact, a few of the early disciples of the Lord Jesus, according to John 1, had previously been disciples of John the Baptist. So I understand the sentiment. But I think that some people that take that view, they have this idea 
that we don't want to show John sitting there in prison at all wavering. You know, we want to think of John as heroic. John, after all, was a tough guy. He was clothed in a leathern girdle and skins, and I only wear those things in hunting season, you know, back home in Pennsylvania. Don't wear them in the meeting typically, so don't worry. But there he was, the wild man from the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. I just put that stuff in my tea, the honey that is, not the locusts. Not much for bugs in my tea. But John the Baptist, tough guy that he was, he couldn't have been wavering, could he? He couldn't have been doubting. And yet I think that's the exact force of what this passage of Scripture is all about. Because the Lord Jesus wants believers to understand that suffering for his sake is not abnormal, nor is it atypical. In fact, it's what's to be expected. So what do you do when you've expected that the Lord Jesus is going to bring in his kingdom, that the king is on the scene, you're his forerunner, and you're going out telling the nation, prepare, get ready, the king is coming. He's on the verge of making his appearance. And it doesn't happen. I mean, sure, Christ starts his ministry, but John is allowed to be arrested and to be thrown into the prison. And as he sits there day after day in the cells, still maintaining a good testimony all the while, he says to himself, now did I get something wrong here? Did I miss a chapter back there in the Minor Prophets somewhere? I mean, everybody rushes through the Minor Prophets. You want to get to the good stuff, right? Maybe I missed something. Are you the one that we look for? or Are you the one to come, he says, or do we look for another? So he sends two disciples. An official inquiry before the Lord Jesus. And rather than the Lord Jesus saying, you know, guys, what John wants you to get is that I am the Messiah. You should just stay here with me. Look at what he does. He says, go and tell John the things which you see and hear, verse 4. And then when we go down a little further, it says, verse 7, as they departed. If this was just an exercise in John trying to get rid of his disciples and get them to follow the Lord Jesus, it didn't work, did it? It failed abysmally. But with all due respect, I think there are times when believers get assaulted, when believers get hit by affliction, when believers get faced with persecution in particular, and when it's so painful and troubling, they might be tempted to ask themselves, now why is this happening? And Lord, am I really in your will? It's not that they doubt the Lord. They doubt their own appreciation of what the Lord's doing. It's not that John was disbelieving in the Lord Jesus. He was wondering, did I miss something here? Why am I not understanding what you're doing? Why is it not going how I thought it would go? That I proclaim you, and then you step up, and you're acclaimed, and the kingdom comes in in glory. Why am I here in prison? And here's how the Lord Jesus answers. You go and tell John the things you hear and see. This is eyewitness and also auditory testimony, what you see and hear. Verse 5, the blind see. Now the blind man who was healed in John chapter 9 points out to his interlocutors 
that this has never been heard in the history of the world, that anyone should give sight to the blind. There were other miracles done in the Old Testament, even the raising of the dead in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. But we don't ever read of anyone in the Old Testament, so far as I'm aware, opening the eyes of the blind. This is the unique work of God. This is something only God can do. This is something only Messiah would do when he would come. It was specifically prophesied in Isaiah that Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. So he says, tell them the blind see and the lame walk. That's a good one. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. I'm a lame man, folks. I mean, pay attention. When I said the lame walk, I'm a lame man. That's a joke. Anyway, you're, you're, you're too enthralled. <laughs> But um, I'm not a deaf man yet, thank the Lord. But the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The Lord Jesus is saying, examine the signs, John. Look at what the signs are pointing to. You know, we often think of signs for their apologetic value to the lost. We think, well, we'll point out the miracles that the Lord Jesus did, and that'll convince people who the Lord Jesus was. Well, it didn't always, did it? Because there were people that observed the signs, that were eyewitnesses of them. In fact, they didn't deny that something miraculous happened, but they attributed the power the Lord Jesus did them in to Beelzebub. So just because you see the signs, just because you recognize that the Lord Jesus did miracles doesn't mean you're going to believe. But the interesting thing is, it ought to make you believe, shouldn't it? That's the whole argument of the Lord Jesus in John 5. Look at the signs. What are the signs saying about me? They are evidence of who I am. And the interesting thing, when you come later in John to the upper room ministry, John chapter 14 in particular, the Lord says the same thing to the disciples. He says, believe in me. And if you can't believe in me, believe in me for the work's sake. Look at the signs. Let that abet your faith. Let that build your belief in me. If you begin to have doubts, if you begin to have troubles, you look at what I did. You come back to the word. You examine my deeds, the things I did. And that will build your faith. You know, the Lord acknowledges here that believers have doubts. That comes. But what we are to do as believers is to take our doubt to the Lord Jesus. We live in a generation that not only thinks doubt is normal, in some senses they think doubt is good. They think it's bad to be dogmatic about something. That you think you know the truth. No, the Lord Jesus says doubt is part of the human condition. That's true. Doubt can happen, particularly when you're hurting, when you're persecuted, or when things are tough. That's all true. But what you are to do with doubt is to take it to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not to let it drive you from Christ, not to let it separate you from Christ, but you're to go to the Lord Jesus Christ to get your doubts answered and removed. He says, blessed is he who's not offended in me. It's the Lord's way of saying, hang in there, John. I am true. 
You haven't missed the boat. I am the Messiah. You are following according to my Father's plan. And this isn't out of His control. You just keep pressing on. And John did faithfully press on, as the Gospel of Matthew will later record in chapter 14. He bore witness to his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by giving his life. Now, the Lord Jesus then takes this opportunity to talk about John and to look at that stage of salvation history. And he says, verse 7, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. I mean, was John the kind of a commentator, the sort of a pundit, like we have today, who takes a public opinion poll and sees which way the wind is blowing, and he trims his sail to match the breeze of public opinion. Was that John? Does he sound that way to you? Let me tell you, John would have flunked every homiletics class of every Bible college and seminary in the United States of America. You know why? Because his congregation shows up, and he said to them, You brood of vipers! You're a bunch of sons of poisonous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, he's smiling. He likes that illustration. I mean, this was not a guy to mince words, was he? He was right out there with it. He was blunt. Not somebody kind of wavering, oh, it could be this, it might be that, or, or certainly not someone saying, God wants you to be happy. You can have your best life now. No, it wasn't like that at all. He's out there speaking about sin and judgment, and you better repent and get right with God. He's telling them exactly how it is. And the Lord says, what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments. You know, he's got that $2,000 suit on. And he just looks like he just stepped out of the, the salon. And there he comes out looking all nice and all dapper and even a little bit effeminate perhaps, you know, just a little too much gel or hairspray in the hair. Now he says, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? And the scholars tell us that the way he phrases this question anticipates a positive answer. Yes, that is what we went out to see. A prophet, a spokesman for God. And the Lord Jesus agrees. He says, yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, and here he quotes Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You say, now how does that follow? Well, it certainly wasn't a statement on John's character. You know, John is one of the most lauded, one of the most heralded, one of the most praised servants of the Lord in all of the Bible. The Lord wasn't putting him down here. He was holding him up as an example. Yes, this is a true prophet of God. But let me tell you, as good as John was and as great as his privilege was to announce... Messiah's here. As wonderful as it was for him to say in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says to you, I tell you, the very least one in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because of their position in the development of God's purposes. 
In other words, this prophet, for all of his wonderful experiences, the most he was going to get to see was the Lord Jesus come on the scene. But any person being born again through faith in the Lord Jesus from the first century onwards up to this moment is in a better position than he positionally, aren't we? Because we're living on this side of Calvary. The Lord Jesus has died and risen again. And the Lord Jesus has given the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit indwells us. And we are part of the one body that began on the day of Pentecost. It didn't even exist when John was here. So, the very least in the kingdom of heaven, from the sense of, I'll call it salvation privilege, is in a better position than John was in. What a tremendous privilege. And from the days of John, says the Lord Jesus, John the Baptist, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, that expression is a little bit nebulous in English. It's a little bit hard to parse and to understand. It's no easier if you know the Greek language, apparently. Because you can find some Greek scholars that say what the Lord Jesus is saying is just try really hard for the kingdom. And there are other Greek scholars that are saying, no, the essence of it is, what he's saying is, we're going to be persecuted as we proclaim the kingdom. Well, who's right? Well, I think it's a bit of both, actually. I want to be diplomatic here with my brethren that I'll be with in heaven, even though they might be on opposite sides of certain exegetical issues. And I will say that when the Lord Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven suffering violence, that is a term normally used negatively in the New Testament, and there are people that are persecuting the kingdom, and as the kingdom is being proclaimed, there's opposition. We saw that in the discourse in chapter 10. We've seen it in the life of John the Baptist up to this point. But the Lord goes on to use another term there, the violent take it by force. Or as the parallel expression the Lord uses in Luke, is that people are pressing to go into it. So if you bring these images together, you get this picture of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus coming, of this kingdom coming to earth, and of some fighting against it, some opposing it, but others saying, no, I'm going to fight to get in it. I'm not going to let anything hinder me or dissuade me or turn me aside. Even like John the Baptist, if I have to go to the slammer for it, if I, I will. And if I have to die for it, I will. Because that's what the kingdom is all about. He says, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Malachi 4 had promised that Elijah would come before the great and notable day of the Lord. And the Lord, John the Baptist, had that Elijah-like ministry of calling the nation back from apostasy, back to the Lord. But also, if they had received the forerunner, the king could have come and set up his kingdom then. You say, what would he have done about sin? What would he have done about laying down his life as a sacrifice? I don't know. It would have had to happen, but there didn't have to be the, re the rejection in one sense. Of course, it was prophesied that it would happen. But it wasn't determinism. It wasn't that God prophesied it, and therefore evil men had to reject the Lord Jesus and had to kill the Lord Jesus. No, God told what they would do. And God used their wickedness to bring about his purposes, just like he did in the life of Joseph. You meant it for evil, said Joseph. God meant it for good. 
But what the Lord Jesus is saying here is you're at a point in history, those people right then, were at this blessed point in history where they could receive the forerunner and receive the king and have the kingdom come in then. And you know what? The nation left their moment pass by. I pray that there's nobody here like that tonight. Because you know, the same thing that happened in the nation of Israel can happen to individuals. You hear the truth, you hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus proclaimed, and you say, ah, another time. After I find out whether the Seahawks or the Broncos win, you know? After I get my financial ship in order, after I get a good job, after I get married, after I have kids, uh, after I get a promotion, too busy now, too busy to think about that stuff. When I retire, I'll think about that and how many people put it off and put it off and they miss their opportunity to come to the Lord Jesus. Now the Lord Jesus said, you know, this generation, they're not happy with anything we do. John came and they thought he was too abstemious. They said, you know, we wanted you to play a pleasing song so we all could dance. The Kaiser girls would like that. They never miss an opportunity to dance. And uh, we wanted you to dance and be happy and light. And you come and you're Mr. Sourpuss. You're a dour prophet. You're kind of negative. And the Lord Jesus comes and he goes and celebrates with people. He's the kind of guy you'd be happy to have come to a wedding as they were in John chapter 2. And they weren't happy about that, were they? They said, he comes eating and drinking. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. And he's a friend of sinners. <laughs> well, I tell you what, the Lord Jesus always was perfectly self-controlled. He wasn't a glutton. He wasn't a drunkard. But I will give them credit. He was a friend of sinners. And I'm thankful he still is. Because if he wasn't a friend of sinners, none of us could ever be saved. He was a friend of sinners without being tainted by their sin. He was a friend of sinners without ever being unequally yoked, without ever being brought down. He could extend his friendship to us, and by being our friend, he could change us. He could lead us to the truth. He said wisdom is justified of her children. Now he begins after that to upbraid the cities where he had done his mighty works. And I don't want to look at that in detail for sake of time. Suffice it to say that the point you come away with is greater light means greater responsibility. The theologian Stan Lee once said great power equals great responsibility. But actually the better point here is greater light means greater responsibility. Because here the Lord Jesus had come to their cities and he had done clear evidence, done the works that showed who he was and preached. And they thought somehow that physical proximity would bring them into blessing. You know, the Lord Jesus elsewhere says to them that these people come before his judgment throne one day and they say, Lord, open to us. Didn't you prophesy in our streets? Didn't you come to our town and have some meetings, Lord? And, you know, I was from Capernaum, which you called your home at one stage. <laughs> I mean, surely there must be some geographical commonality, right? No, not at all. Because the Lord Jesus said it wasn't about geographic proximity. It wasn't even about being in the right place at the right time. It was about receiving 
the Lord Jesus Christ and what he said. And they hadn't done that. So the Lord Jesus said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, ancient cities who are synonymous with utter depravity. And the Lord tells them that it was going to be easier on them in the judgment than on these cities. That's amazing, isn't it? We think about Sodom and Gomorrah as being places of violence and places of perversion. And a city in first century Judea or Galilee, these were Galilean cities for the most part, and Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities in the north there, present-day Lebanon. But they weren't doing the same kinds of extreme, vulgar, in-your-face, ugly sins that Sodom and Gomorrah did. But they did a greater sin. They had the light of the Lord Jesus shine on them. And they said, we don't want it. Isn't that amazing? That there are many people that will be in hell who were never child molesters, they were never rapists, they were never murderers, they were never drug dealers, they were never terrorists, they were never murderers. They wouldn't think of doing such things. They were morally upright and respected members of their community, but they'll be in hell because they rejected the Lord Jesus and his light. That's how serious it is. Not to say those other things are good. God will judge those things too. But this is the worst sin, rejecting the Lord Jesus. But the part I want to close on starts in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, and you've revealed them to babes. Well, you say to yourself, here comes John the Baptist, and he's preaching an in-your-face kind of gospel. He's just laying it right out there. And people don't believe, and, and he ends up in jail. And then the Lord Jesus comes doing these miracles and preaching the way he was. And these cities didn't receive it. Is it that people just weren't smart enough? Is it that people just weren't educated enough? And the Lord says, no, it's not that at all. It's not about being wise and prudent in this world's esteem. It's about being a baby as far as the world's concerned. You know, being simple in regard to evil, but being wise in regard to light. What the Lord is looking for is people that will become like children. That'll say, you know what? I will put aside my sophistication and my pride and my prejudices and all the things that I wrestle with, I will believe the word of God. I will rest in the Lord Jesus the way a child rests in the arms of his mother or his father who loves him. I will put my trust implicitly in him and his word. And the Lord says, that's the kind of person you've revealed these things to. Those who come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm ignorant. Lord, I'm foolish. Lord, I'm just a babe. Teach me. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, verse 26. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. Now, isn't that wonderful? The one who is revealing himself, the one who is disclosing himself, says all things have been revealed to me by my Father. There's not anything about the truth that you need to know or I need to know that the Lord Jesus cannot reveal to you. All things have been given to him. But look at what he goes on to say. And no one knows the Son except the Father. 
Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. You cannot know God the Father apart from knowing His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you cannot properly appreciate His Son, Jesus Christ, without bowing to what the Father has said. This is a work of the triune God, who the third member, who some have called the silent partner of the Trinity, I I say that reverently, but tonight he's speaking through the word, and he's telling us who the Lord Jesus is, the Son of God, and he's telling us who the Father is, the one true God of the universe. And if you're going to know him, you must know him through the Lord Jesus. It's not enough to say, I'm a monotheist, I believe in one God. You have to believe in the God and Father of the Lord Jesus. You have to believe what the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, has revealed about him. But doesn't that sound hopelessly exclusive? I mean, the Lord ends that verse by saying, and he whom the Son wills to reveal to him. You can't know the Father unless the Son shows him to you. You say, well... How do I know then that the Son will show me the Father? Please read on in the Bible. Look at what it says in verse 28. His very next statement. Come to me. I'm the only one who can show the Father to someone. And the next thing he says is, come to me. If someone said to you, I'm the only one in this county that can pay your debts. Come to my office tomorrow morning. Would you be there? I'd be there an hour before opening time, maybe two hours. Traffic being what it is around here. If someone said, I'm the only doctor in the United States that can perform this surgery and save your life, would you be at his office? Again, I'd be there. I'd wear any kind of gown he told me. I wouldn't care if it was pink. If you're the only one who can do it, go ahead and do it. The only one who does it says, come to me. I'll show you the Father. Come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Now that is a description of the kind of person that comes to the Lord Jesus. They're a person who's worked hard and they feel weary. They're burdened down. He says to that person, I will give you rest. Verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you. Because... After all, coming to Christ isn't about stopping working entirely. It's about being yoked to the Lord. A yoke was a harness put around two animals. The Lord doesn't believe in single-necked yokes. The Lord says, you come and yoke yourself up to me. Take my yoke upon you. That was a phrase the rabbis used in that day. Come under my yoke. And the Lord Jesus said about them, you bind many burdens hard for people to bear and you won't move them with your little finger. But he says, you come and take my yoke. For I am gentle. He says, and learn from me. For I am gentle, verse 29, and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, What the Lord Jesus shows us about his kingdom is that in going out to preach his message, we face opposition. And on times we face persecution. 
Some believers find themselves in a prison cell facing death like John the Baptist did. But you know something? The Lord Jesus could speak to John the Baptist in his extremity, in the weight that was on him, and the Lord Jesus could say, you take my yoke upon you. I'll give you rest. I'll help you bear the burden. I'll bear it for you, in fact. You can be entirely and completely at peace. There are billionaires in this world who live in the most luxurious, poshest conditions imaginable, and they're not at rest tonight. They're absolutely miserable. And they have no peace. And they have no answer for their burdens. The Lord Jesus, in the midst of opposition and in the midst of persecution, offers himself to us and says, come to me, I'll show you the Father. I'll show you a God who doesn't make your life onerous. I'll show you a God who doesn't make it hard to do His will. A God who links Himself up with you. You couple yourself to Him, and He'll give you rest. Even in the midst of your labors, even in the midst of your troubles, He'll sustain you. He'll hold on to you. He'll encourage you. He'll keep you. That is our God, the Father of the Lord Jesus. And that is God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is His Holy Spirit, the one who comforts us in all tribulation. Father, we're thankful tonight for this wonderful promise. We think of all that Thy people are suffering. Some are sick. Some are having financial problems. Some are facing persecution. Some of our brothers and sisters in the world tonight They're not just preaching about persecution, they're living it. Some are in prison. We think of that dear brother in Iran, and there are others that we don't even know about in that same country. We pray for his wife and children. We pray for those in North Africa. We pray for those in Egypt. We pray for those in the persecuted world, wherever they may be. We don't know, Father, but Thou knowest each one. And we're thankful that Thou art the one who will bring in thy kingdom one day of glory and that we'll share in it. Thou will wipe away every tear. We thank thee and we pray that these saints here this week would experience some of the joy and rest that there is to be had in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.